the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode two of the Forward Together podcast, our second series of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean, I work for Hollywood Trust and as always I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. Good stuff. So, this podcast is supported by the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland and the Reconciliation Fund of the Department for Foreign Affairs. And it's a series of focused conversations on issues that matter here in Northern Ireland. And in this series, we're taking a, a deep dive, if you like, into a number of different issues. So, Paul, this time round, you met with Professor Siobhan O'Neill from Ulster University. Absolutely, yes, that's right. Siobhan is Professor of Mental Health Sciences at Ulster University and is recognised not just as one of the UK's foremost uh, experts on understanding mental health and ill health, but actually a a world-recognised individual. I mean, I read recently an interview with her in the New York Times, so we Mm. actually have one of the world's um, experts uh, on here. Okay, delighted to have her on the podcast. One of the things that she talks about, obviously, is the past, the conflict here, and how it continues to impact on uh, the lives of people in our society. That's right. And, and I was particularly keen that we actually had this conversation with Siobhan, not least as I referred to that interview in the New York Times, where she actually was talking about the fact that, uh, perhaps rather surprisingly to, to those of us who aren't experts in the field, the, the delay where actually sometimes it can take uh, several decades for the full emotional impact of events and the troubles to really impact on someone's uh, state of, of mental health. For example, it can be triggered when they change jobs, when they change uh, their uh, living accommodation when they move home or even when they retire so it it can be those big events in your life that then trigger a PTSD incidence Uh, and uh, that is one of the things I thought was really interesting and useful to hear from Siobhan. Siobhan also talks about addiction uh, and how that's impacted and I suppose how it's linked to trauma especially here in Northern Ireland. Absolutely. And, and especially you, you and I are based in Derry, where we have a very high level rate of uh, suicide. Indeed, suicide is very high across the whole of Northern Ireland. And that seems to have a relationship with addiction. And the addiction seems to have a relationship with trauma from the troubles. Uh, though clearly it's too simplistic just to put it down to that, because we know in places like Dublin, there's also very high levels of addiction mm. and suicide. Uh, so these things are very complex, but clearly the troubles does play into this. And clearly, there is a delayed response to some of the emotional impact of the troubles. Well, let's hear the the conversation, the very detailed conversation that you had with Siobhan. Now, you've spoken at some length, Siobhan, about the context of Northern Ireland uh, in terms of where we are in terms of mental health. I mean, can, can you put a bit of context on this? I mean, clearly, we've got mental health problems in Northern Ireland, but clearly there are global problems on mental health. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a rise in mental health problems in the Western world. Um, So we know that around one in four or one in five people in in Europe or in the West would have a mental health problem. In Northern Ireland, that's uh, somewhat higher. Um, 
our research actually showed in 2008 around 39% of the population had met the criteria for a mental illness at some point in their lifespan and that includes mild mental illnesses as well as serious mental illnesses. Um, so in Northern Ireland we know we, we have more mental illness than other places and when we look at the research evidence from the World Mental Health Surveys and other studies we can see there that the trauma of the troubles seems to have had an impact on the population that has led to that that differential that that, that, that increased rate here compared to other places. And is that even evenly spread across Northern Ireland or were the places that were most impacted by the troubles also the places which are most impacted by uh, by mental ill health? The, the trauma of the troubles wasn't felt equally across Northern Ireland. The urban areas of deprivation in Belfast and Derry would have had higher rates of trauma relating to the troubles and people were more likely, people who lived there were more likely to be exposed to trauma relating to the troubles. And other people, other places were affected too, obviously, but I think there's the double whammy um, of poverty and deprivation in, the, in those same urban areas that saw the worst of the violence of the troubles. So you have those things actually working together. So not only do you have a very traumatic event, but you've got multiple stressors. And we know that, that most people after a trauma are completely fine. They're, we're, we're humans, we're very resilient. But if you have underlying adversities or if you live in a, an area where there's a lot of poverty and deprivation, then you're much more likely to develop a mental health problem after exposure. And you're much more likely to be exposed to violence in those areas as, as it stands. So you've got these layers of um, adversities and, and trauma exposures that mean we have, we have more mental illness and it is concentrated in, in particular areas. And now this is very complex stuff, isn't it? Because the, the it was typically areas of the highest poverty and deprivation that also suffered the worst areas of the troubles, the worst impact of the troubles. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We know that um, the people who were already unemployed, who were already living in adverse circumstances, were more likely to participate in the troubles and in a way that was protective. I mean, we, we saw the rates of suicide were much lower during the period of the troubles. And one of the reasons for that is um, that people who were most marginalised and vulnerable were involved in a, in a struggle, if you like, and that gave them a reason for living. It, it gave meaning provided that meaning that sense of purpose that keeps us all going um, but unfortunately then after the, the end of the troubles there's a weighing up of what has been won as a result of all that suffering um, as a result of what had happened and of course then we see that the rates of suicide increase then after that. And, and I read something that you said in the uh, New York Times a few weeks ago that I thought was very interesting which is the delay in impact before it is perceived in terms of uh, uh, acute crisis in terms of mental ill health and also in terms of suicide. Can you, can you talk a, a bit about that delay and how post-traumatic stress disorder impacts on an a evolving basis? Okay, so after a trauma, um, a traumatic event, our body reacts it's called the acute stress response or the fight or flight free syndrome um, and it's a very very natural reaction to a situation where we believe our lives are threatened um, and and that that will last from anything from a few days to a few weeks but it is actually within the, the, the normal realm 
of behavioural responses to trauma and it shouldn't be pathologised as such. Um, and it's important at that stage that we don't go in and try and um, suggest the person can't cope with it and it should subside after a while. People start to try and make meaning from it. Um, and it's at that stage then that the mental health problems, the symptoms of mental health problems can start to emerge. Um, with PTSD, it's a disorder relating to how the person remembers that trauma and the memory of the event that that, that is that is at the the um at the core of the trauma that the the memory can come back at times when they can't control it's in the form of flashbacks and nightmares and that's often the, the first set of symptoms that come with ptsd where those uh, obtrusive memories interfere with the person's life and functioning and that is a sign then that there there's something unusual or pathological happening that may lead to mental illness um and then of course after the the flashbacks and nightmares the person may rearrange their lives they they change um, how they behave, how they react with other people, and it affects every aspect of their lives. And, and that is when we start to see PTSD. It's important to ju just just to differentiate between the acute stress response, which is absolutely normal, and then the, the mental illnesses that can result from trauma like PTSD. Uh, so, as I understand it, another factor in this is when someone's going through another big life change. So they might be retiring or moving house, moving into a different part of their life. And at that point, they, I, I don't know if they're reflecting or whether they, the, the impact of other changes changes their psychological state. But as I understand it, that can be the, the trigger for entering into perhaps a, a new phase of PTSD. Is that understanding correct? Yeah, PTSD can emerge years after the, the event a traumatic event. It's always related to a traumatic event because it includes that um, symptom of flashbacks, re-experience, intrusive memories, so that the memory of an event. But it can come at a time when the person is under stress or under pressure for very, very different reasons. Um, how we cope with stress is, is really the basis of mental illness. If we can cope with stress, we won't develop mental illness. Um, and that, that stress is, is, has a physical effect in our body. But a, a pressure or a stress years after a trauma um, can actually lead the person to either consciously or subconsciously think about what has happened in their past and and can can lead that to um, it, can, it can create problems for them as a result of that that trauma so we can see um that when somebody's retiring or moving house or something like that that they may start getting those nightmares about a trauma that, that happened them earlier and they thought that they'd put that to the side that they had moved on in a way but that that's coming back to haunt them um, and, and that can lead to, to mental illness, but not always. It's just a sign that they're under pressure. Um, and stress is a normal part of life. It, it really is all about how we cope with that and how resilient we are. But what it means is that we, we shouldn't dismiss the, the troubles as an event of the past. We have to recognise that the symptoms of it are continuing to affect people decades after the actual events. This is a really important point. Yes, the um, the trauma of the troubles is there. It's part of us. It's part of who we are. Um, so it's encoded. It's it's in our physical um, memory bank, if you like. So it can res it can come back up, resurrect 
years later. Um, and of course, the troubles is not something that has, has really passed for many, many people because we are still undergoing um, processes where we're, we're trying to establish the truth. We're trying to achieve justice. We're trying to promote reconciliation. There's new information coming out all the time about different events that have, that have happened as a result of the troubles or as part of the troubles and that information is very much current so um, we you know we all think and reflect back on our whole lives uh, this is not something that stops as we age we, we keep doing that so it's part of who we are now there's another layer to this isn't there Siobhan which is a lot of people got through the troubles by relying on addictive substances, whether it's alcohol or other substances. Um, and how does that added layer impact on the trauma that people felt and their ability to cope? Yeah, this is, this is absolutely true. The, the troubles was a, a source of stress um, that was uncontrollable, that, um, that, that was invading people's everyday lives. So there was that acute anxiety that came with living in an area where there was ongoing violence and danger and threat all the time. So if, if you like, um, when, when your body's on high alert, you, you need to do something to try and get rid of that, that, that terrible, terrible feeling. Um, and a lot of people turned to drugs and alcohol. Um, and alcohol particularly is easily available and culturally it's what we do um, to cope with things, to celebrate. So th that was a way that people had of managing stress. And we know that alcohol is a, is a depressant. It causes depression over time um, and it causes addiction. People people get addicted to alcohol and drugs and it's the, the harm that has been caused as a result of that is immeasurable across across Northern Ireland. It causes harm to families, children, when parents are um, using substances to cope with stress. And that creates, and, and this is what part of what we talk about uh, intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma is whenever parents inadvertently create adversities for their children, um, because of how they, they are coping with the trauma that they've experienced. And alcohol is, is a huge, huge part of that. And in a sense, that creates a culture. So you've not only got the, the trauma of the troubles, you've then got a culture where excessive alcohol consumption, it becomes part of normal life, perhaps, for many people. Well, yes, um, and people depend on alcohol and they need that. They need to have that. Um, and it's not necessarily a problem for everybody that uses alcohol, but if it's the only way that that we have of coping, then it can be it's really it can be really, really dangerous and, and really damaging to communities and to families. Um, and it's something that that we need to acknowledge and wake up to. Um, and again, it's because it's part of our culture, it's very, very difficult to move away from that to be the person who's not using alcohol to find the replacement the replacements um, the replacement coping strategies aren't ready aren't readily available or at least at the time they weren't readily available and it wasn't discussed so people did what they needed to do and also one of the big um, the big factors with alcohol is that it, it connected people together it promoted those social connections that are so protective of our mental health so that was a, another way that, that alcohol was, was a good thing for people because it brought the people into pubs and bars or into each other's houses and they had that connection through their use of alcohol. So whenever we take alcohol away, we can, we can be damaging those social bonds. So we need to create um, alternatives there as well. 
And of course, we shouldn't overstate the connection between addiction and the troubles because we have an all-island problem of addiction. And if you go to deprived parts of Dublin, the levels of addiction to drugs are also a serious problem, both in terms of mental health, but also in terms of the promotion of criminality. So we have problems that go beyond the troubles in terms of addiction, don't we? Absolutely. The, the cultural um, use of alcohol to cope with stress, will, will um, it's the same regardless of the type of stress you're talking about. So the stress of poverty, um, if you're in a deprived area of, of Dublin, or uh, is it, absolutely as bad as the the stress and the pressure in Belfast, um, except that the, the traumatic events that, that are common in Northern Ireland, the troubles related to traumatic events, are maybe slightly harder to address. Um, and obviously, in order to really treat addiction, it's not just about getting the person to stop taking the alcohol or whatever it is they're taking. It's about looking at those underlying factors um, and what what are they coping with? What what is alcohol being used to? As, as a way of coping with, you know, what's what's the underlying problem there and managing that. And if you're talking about a, a trauma related to the troubles, then that can be a little bit more complex. Now, you mentioned also the, the, the situation within families. And one of the other challenges that has been left over by the troubles is that many families were unable to parent in the traditional concept of parenting during the troubles, where you might have had one one parent in, in prison, perhaps, and uh, doing other things, and you had breakup of families. So how has that impacted on intergenerational family life? Um, yeah, in, in the Troubles, of course, there was separation because of incarceration, um, and that's a huge pressure for, for a family. It's interesting, though, the rates of divorce um, and separation were, were actually lower in Northern Ireland than in other places, certainly in our study in 2008. Um, so families tended to stay together, but we also know that the violence um, in, in society also was, was also reflected in, in the home, and there was violence and domestic violence um, and childhood physical punishment were all very, very common in Northern Ireland and more common here than in other places, perhaps. Um, certainly in our study, that's that's what we found. So we're talking there about circumstances that, that do impact on the mental health of young people as they're growing up. And even the trauma exposure um, in a parent and the symptoms of PTSD can interfere with the relationship between a parent and their child. And we know that attachment and, and those early relationships, particularly in the first three years, that, that is what, what um, shapes the child's stress response system. So if you've got a parent who's struggling to cope with a trauma, then the, that attachment could be impacted by that, um, which again promotes mental illness as the child's growing older. But there are many, many ways we can intervene early. I mean, this is not to say that that all these children are doomed, not by a long stretch, but it's just to, to highlight that, that these are problems that are that are apparent in communities in Northern Ireland right now. We need to be doing a lot more, I think, to recognise these and to identify them um, and to help parents when they're struggling. You mentioned in passing there about the fact that your survey in 2008 found a lower level of divorce. I mean, th this is interesting because when I've looked at the underlying reasons for the very high levels of uh, economic uh, disconnect here, uh, the, the high level of economic inactivity in Northern Ireland, one of the factors 
seemed to be that the, this proportionately large number of single parents. So that seems to conflict with what your survey found? Our survey was uh, in 2008, so I think things have changed even in, in the years since that survey, so 2005 to 2008. Um, and I think there's a lot of single parents who are, are single parents not through marriage breakup, but they, um, they, they become pregnant, a single, single woman become pregnant. Um, so maybe that accounts for the difference there, but it would be interesting just to look at those figures. I think um, divorce certainly wasn't permitted um, until very, very recently, so that might have had an impact. But where there's no separation and divorce, you will get people, couples staying together when maybe it would be better for them to separate. So it's not necessarily a good thing. Um, it's just, I suppose it just reflects the way um, the, the, the culture that we lived in at that time and the role of the church, of course, too. Uh, and all the different churches, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, with different rules, yeah. Yeah, I mean, before we talk about the, the ongoing level of support that's needed, I just want a thing to put it in to contemporary context. I mean, obviously, at, when we sp are speaking today, it's in the context of COVID-19 and the isolation of people. I mean, do you have any sense about how that's playing into depression, both locally and globally? Are people able to cope with it or are the signs are that people in initial stages can cope and they have difficulty as things go on? What's your perception on that? Um, there, there is some data actually already available. My colleagues, um, um, Mark Shevel and Jamie Murphy and McBride have worked with the University of Sheffield and their study was just released yesterday and, and what they what they found was that there was an increase of course in anxiety and depression just after the lockdown measures were introduced um, and that is absolutely to be expected this is in no way pathological when you have a threat such as COVID um, a global pandemic it, it, it's a very real threat so again that acute stress response is very very normal and for a lot of people that will tip them into the criteria for mental illness for a while um, so it will be interesting to see what happens over time as people adjust one of the um one of the factors that will affect that is the extent to which people can maintain their social connections. Um, isolation is a huge, huge pressure, but if people are, are able to get out and exercise and they're able to meet people essentially online, then that should start to ameliorate some of the effects of isolation. Um, I think the other thing that's happening right now that's that's quite positive and protective is that the government are introducing a range of strategies to support people who've lost businesses who are out of work as a result of COVID. Now, I know we could go a lot further, obviously, but um, one of the real risks is that people who um, have, have jobs and livelihoods will perceive that they've lost everything, and that sense of hopelessness is very, very damaging to mental health. So I think some of the measures that have been introduced, the protective measures, have been helpful there in reassuring people that there will be some sort of normality after that. Um, but it remains to be seen how, how the the deaths, the projected numbers of deaths are going to impact on our mental health because we are being denied those rituals of grieving like funerals. They're so, so important. Um, and of course, grief and death um, causes mental health problems as well in the long term. So um, 
this this is going to be a factor that we're going to have to to deal with and look at. Um, but there is also some evidence that that sense of connectedness that the people are experiencing, um, the 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 feeling that we are in this together, that there is a role that we all can play in in um, reducing the spread of the virus and keeping people safe. I think that that could be something that actually protects us. Um, and when we look at other countries and, and in other eras, countries that are going through periods of war or conflict and significant pressure, um, we actually see a reduction in suicide rates during that time, as, as we have during the troubles in Northern Ireland. So um, that can be protective. So there's so many complex factors at play, and it's certainly not inevitable that we will have a huge surge of mental illness as a result of, of COVID. But again, the next few weeks are absolutely crucial and what happens there is central to that. And again, there's complexity, isn't there, Siobhan, in the sense that you, you mentioned how social media can be used to bind people together. But equally, you've issued a warning that people need to use social media with care, especially during the COVID-19, so that they don't get trapped in some circle of only reading negative material. So how can social media be a positive force in terms of binding people together rather than making them depressed? Um, social, yeah, social media is um, useful because it can help you connect with people who are who are like you, and you know you get a sense that there that there's a whole community out there. So even if you're physically alone, that you're part of something bigger. Um, so it it's really about ensuring that that your timeline on your preferred social media platform that it is not full of negative stories. Um, that and those are interesting, and certainly the media has um, focused on the people who've died but there's it's also about achieving that that balance really and that sense of perspective and looking at the good as well as the negative so we need to be curators of our own social media and protect our own mental health um, and create our own distractions and ways of of moving away from this and doing something else um, so that it doesn't be it doesn't it isn't all consuming because we know that every well certainly for me when I read terrible stories it makes me much more more anxious and I certainly went through that at the start of the COVID um, the, the lockdown you know of reading a lot and getting engrossed in it and it did affect my mental health and anxiety so we need to we need to protect ourselves and have that bit of insight and understand how we're responding um, and, and, re and work out what the difference is between what we can control and what we can't control here um, what we can do about this personally and then what what we what we need to leave for others to do so getting angry about politicians not doing what they said they would do or not doing enough isn't um, necessarily going to be that helpful for our mental health either now we don't know as we sit here today when this broadcast will go out as a podcast and it may well be it's very likely that COVID-19 will still be causing us at least some type of lockdown when this comes goes out so so what's your advice to people when they are in this situation uh, in terms of how to have a positive daily experience while being locked in their own homes um I think with, with the first thing to do is structure your day um make a plan for what you're going to do and that structure should include exercise 
um, or getting outside or moving your body in some way, that's really important. It's really important for your mental health. It's an exercise as a natural antidepressant. It gets rid of all those unpleasant um, chemicals that, that that are associated with anxiety. Um, so you're actually you're actually releasing that. You're getting rid of that by exercise. So that's really really important. The other thing we must do every day is connect with people in some way, shape, or form, and that could be um, ideally it would actually be visually using a screen um, if we can. So, but but a phone call is equally equally useful. But the connections and the exercise. Are, are crucial too and then if we can find a way to distract ourselves to be in the moment to focus on something other than COVID-19 um, and for some people that will be work and others that could be meditation um, or exercise again can can be a form of that or, or some sort of creative output so that's useful as well um, but I, the, the, the most important thing is to, to understand the difference between what you can't control and what you can't control and not feel guilty about feeling okay during this, about having times when you're not focused on COVID-19, um, where you're just focusing on yourself and your, your own well-being and doing, if you know that you're doing everything you can and you're following the guidance and the instructions and you're doing the social distancing, and then, then you yourself are doing everything you can to help with the situation. And as a society, as we emerge from this, what should we do to strengthen our mental good health in, across society? And to what extent do, does the executive put in the resources that are required to address the fact that we have got this problem within Northern Ireland of both poor mental health across parts of the population and high levels of addiction? Um, I think it's a multi-layered a multi approach, a multi-level approach. Um, so when we're talking about promoting good mental health, it really needs to start in childhood and the early years. We need to support parents um, to promote the mental health of their, their children and to have those strong attachments that are so, so protective. So all of that funding for early years, for um, health visiting, all of that is absolutely crucial to this effort. And then whenever we're in the education system, we, we need to help kids um, with coping and resilience and these are skills that can be taught we can teach children uh, problem focused coping we can teach a hopeful mindset uh, there's a lot that we can do in schools to build resilience we can help children identify their emotional responses and, and help them work out their own ways of addressing that at an early stage and that would um, limit then the numbers that will be coming through to the mental health services we, we also need to be doing a lot more screening so when young people are showing signs of mental health problems we need to be able to identify that and get them the help that they need at an early stage um, and that's something that certainly is missing um, in Northern Ireland or, or there's not enough of that early intervention so um, we have too many young people who are reaching the teenage years with acute anxiety and starting to show signs of depression and then they're being referred to mental health services and was it's good that that's happening that they can get those referrals it's coming for a lot of them much too late and early intervention really is the key and i think across society we need to have a conversation about mental health um we need to be able to know that it's okay to talk about your mental health and to ask for help if you've got a mental health problem. We also need to know the difference between stress and mental illness um, and we need to have our own ways of coping with stress. We need to develop that and understand the difference because I think one of the, the difficulties we certainly see with, with students who are coming to us is they, they can't actually cope with stress or pressure 
um, and th that anxious feeling that we've all had, um, they, they misidentify that as, as a mental illness. It's something that needs an intervention when it's actually not. It's a normal part of life. So th there's a few things we can do there. And the, the government do have, the Northern Ireland government do have a mental health strategy, which is going to be announced and released soon. That's my understanding. Um, and it includes all of those things. And also, of course, at the other end of the scale, includes improvements to mental health services and the way that those are delivered so that we can reduce waiting times um, for people so that we can get people into the right treatment at the right time, the treatments that are evidence-based um, and that we will have a workforce that are competent to deliver those treatments. So all of those things are, are being addressed, but as far as I'm concerned, it couldn't come fast enough. You know, um, there's another generation now who are growing up that, that really do need the schools to be um, putting, putting in the, the resources right now for them. Siobhan, thank you very much indeed. That's great. Okay, that was your interview with Siobhan there. A really interesting conversation, Paul. I think her comments about social media, particularly at this, during this COVID-19 crisis at the minute, were really interesting and really important. I thought it was very important that we had Siobhan's voice about how people should protect themselves and protect their mental health during the, the COVID-19 lockdown. But there is that close relationship with how you use social media, how you can use it positively, because you can use it positively. I think that Siobhan was making that point very carefully in terms of relationships with relatives to, to give them a constant uh, feeling that they've not been ignored and neglected. Uh, and to keep in contact with friends and to keep up that positive aspect of mental health. Yet at the same time, to realise that not all parts of social media can be trusted. And actually some of it, if you get addicted to the social media, then actually can be very negative to your uh, uh, mental well-being. And I think that's a really important message that people want to listen to. Yeah, I suppose the way that you talked about the, the COVID-19 crisis as well, and how you, I suppose most of us have already seen stress levels increase and, and the real risk that's associated with that then if people don't manage their stress properly. Absolutely and, and sadly we can see that uh, there's been an increase as, as we discussed in uh, uh, the domestic violence as a result of mm -hmm. that but in fact since that we recorded that interview uh, there's been a warning from the PSNI to expect an increase in domestic violence leading to murder. So this is this is stuff that we have to really take seriously and it's so important that people, which is mostly women but, and children, but that people who are in situations where they're suffering domestic violence, despite the lockdown, have an opportunity to exit their situation and to get help and get support. And I think that Siobhan's message about getting support is is really important. One. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. Okay, well, we'll wind up this episode there. Um, as always, you can find this podcast and all podcasts wherever you find your podcast through uh, whatever app or Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts that you use. We'd be delighted if you could subscribe. Thanks to Paul. Thanks to Siobhan. And we'll talk to you all again soon. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.